The first study I want to talk about today is from July 2017, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the title of the study is Glucose Self-Monitoring in Non-Insulin-Treated Patients with Type 2 Diabetes in Primary Care Settings. By the way, this is a randomized controlled trial. And while this study falls into that category of it will probably not change enough physicians' practice because it is ingrained in our head and should be that when we look at self-monitoring of blood glucose in type 1, type 1 diabetics, it's absolutely necessary. I don't know how you could do long and short-acting insulin without that self-monitoring of the glucose. But when it comes to type 2 diabetics, particularly type 2 diabetics that are not receiving insulin, how important is it to self-monitor blood glucose? And when I tell patients or one of my residents or another doctor colleague hears me telling a patient that I don't really care if they don't self-monitor their glucose daily or just check it you know, once a week may be good enough for me or if they're having symptoms of hypoglycemia, go ahead and check it or just try and figure out how your blood sugar reacts to certain meals and carbohydrate loads. I think those are really good reasons to check a rapid finger stick. But as far as me needing to see a diabetic log of a type 2 diabetic as opposed to just checking hemoglobin A1C, it really has not been important to me for those that are not on insulin. And you get these stares from patients because they've been told different by other physicians and then physicians look at you. You know when people don't talk but they feel something deep inside? It reminds me on the nurse's station this last week in the hospital, one of those really rude patients was leaving and said, I'm never coming back to this hospital. And everybody in the nurse's station just tries to not crack a smile or show any emotion, but they're obviously very fine with that. And don't get me wrong, most nurses and doctors really do like their patients, the overwhelming majority of them. Just every once in a while, you get somebody that is extremely mean. I mean, just mean. And, you know, it's the kind of person where if a drone strike just accidentally hit their house there wouldn't be a lot of mourning we're not we're not looking for that to happen but you know what kind of person I'm talking about here well anyway I'm digressing but the blank stares in the nursing station or blank stares that I get when I tell a type 2 diabetic that they don't have to check their rapid finger stick and the colleagues of mine that disagree with that look at this study just pull it up look at it look at the conclusions again if there's a reason to check rapid finger sticks, like you're intensifying therapy or someone's really uncontrolled or you want them to make lifestyle choices and changes according to those rapid finger sticks, but if it's, you know, your type 2 diabetic that probably doesn't want to check, that probably isn't going to make lifestyle changes, and ultimately it's really not going to change decision making, and I gotta say, you know, that's probably well over half of this population, hate to say it, but that's true. But even if they are going to lose a lot of weight and engage in diet and exercise, I still don't know how a rapid finger stick log for years on end is going to change a whole lot. So it's really 
worth stating the conclusion of this trial, which was that in patients with non-insulin-treated type 2 diabetes, we observed no clinically or statistically significant differences at one year in glycemic control or health-related quality of life between patients who performed self-monitoring of blood glucose compared with those who did not perform self-monitoring of blood glucose. And the final sentence in the conclusion of this study was that the addition of this type of tailored feedback provided through messaging via a meter did not provide any advantage in glycemic control. So again, the way I look at this is if you're intensifying therapy, if you're very uncontrolled and there's a good reason why you want for a short period of time to be doing rapid finger sticks and you think the patient's going to be compliant and trustworthy with it, by all means, go ahead, get rapid finger sticks, adjust therapy. But the majority of type 2 diabetics, I mean, this is a very long-term diagnosis. So we could be talking about thousands upon thousands upon thousands of needle sticks into the fingers over a lifetime of type 2 diabetes. And do you really need that for the long term? I think the answer is in and it's no. Obviously, with the caveat worth restating yet another time, if you are type 2 diabetic on insulin, I'm not sure that applies, meaning you really need to adjust your insulin with rapid finger sticks or using some type of invasive glucose monitoring as there is different technologies these days and will be in the future. All right, now I want to jump into the past, about a decade, with a trial that sometimes I think gets forgotten, but I think is really important, and I keep seeing this over and over, so it raises some concerns. And has a little bit to do with type 2 diabetes in the sense that with diabetics, we often use ACE inhibitors, even prophylactically if you don't have hypertension, because diabetic kidney disease, known as diabetic nephropathy, is a pretty common complication of type 2 diabetes, and it can lead to end-stage renal disease and dialysis in a whole lot of people. So ACE inhibitors are often considered an agent of choice for providing protection against this. But we use ACE inhibitors for all kinds of things, including just treating hypertension and the guidelines for hypertension just got lowered this week so i think like half of americans have hypertension and obviously we use ace inhibitors for other things like systolic congestive heart failure so a very commonly used drug people are familiar with them and get very comfortable with them but i think it's really important to remember this one fact and this comes from the new england journal of medicine june 8 2006 and it was a study titled Major Congenital Malformations After First Trimester Exposure to ACE Inhibitors. And so for those who forget easily, because my short-term memory is horrible, but so is my short-term memory, what this trial showed is that exposure to ACE inhibitors during the first trimester cannot be considered safe and it should be avoided. Now, the first trimester, you know, it's that time well before the third trimester, right? Well before the time a woman has to pee five minutes after she gets out of the bathroom and she can't tell if her baby's moving or she has to poop 
and just taking a shower is fatiguing. A lot of women in the first trimester don't know they're pregnant. That's the problem. That's the problem of a drug that can cause major congenital malformation. You may be using it and not know you're pregnant. So we have to be really careful when we use it in women of childbearing age if they're not using some sort of contraception and IUD and they want to remain sexually active with a male. Now, of course, you can have conversations and, you know, if they're not sexually active at this time, then you can discuss that if you become sexually active or you're not going to be using birth control, you really have to stop this medication and make sure that they really understand what the risks are. It's not to say they can never be used. You, you know, you can use ACE inhibitors in a younger women population, but I think you have to be cautious and at least have a conversation about it. And then all the caveats that go along with that discussion. If you're asking a young female woman, you know, 18, 19, in front of her mom, whether she's sexually active, I think you can expect that you're probably not always going to get the correct answer. And it goes both ways. If you have a male in your office and he's like 19 and you ask him if he's sexually active and he's playing Pokemon Go, in your office, and he says, yeah, yeah, I'm sexually active. He's lying. Joking. You know I love you fellow nerds. I'm one of you too. All right. Now we can go back to modern times. So I want to talk about a study out of The Lancet that caught my attention. The title of this study was Effect of Azithromycin on Asthma Exacerbations and Quality of Life in Adults with Persistent Uncontrolled Asthma a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. So those of you who've been long-term listeners to me know that I was very interested and did an episode on COPD, the heart, and azithromycin. And a big focus of that episode was on using azithromycin for the long-term in COPD patients. And so this study, they looked at symptomatic asthma patients patients that already are using inhaled maintenance therapy. So does azithromycin in that population reduce exacerbations and ultimately improve quality of life? So in this study, the intervention group, what they were doing is they were giving oral azithromycin 500 milligrams three times a week versus, you know, the placebo control group. And they added it to their maintenance therapy, and this study went on for 48 weeks, so a long time. Now, you know, most of us have no desire even to keep up with most maintenance things, like car maintenance. We'll say, eh, our car will break down or it'll crash, but it's better than me having to take the car in for a day out of my busy schedule and pay for maintenance, because we all like to live dangerously like that. And I think Study conditions like this, where we're talking about maintenance drugs, are not necessarily going to be the real world for most people, just like people don't maintain their cars all the time in the real world. A few of you do, God bless you, but most of us, you know, we don't keep up with manufacturer recommendations. But assuming a patient really could take the azithromycin three times a week, just like these trial conditions, at least for 48 weeks, the conclusion would be that in patients who have symptomatic asthma despite inhaled maintenance therapy, 
azithromycin reduced exacerbations and improved quality of life. So it looked like the number needed to treat was seven to reduce severe and even moderate exacerbations of asthma, but there also was a number needed to harm of seven in which the azithromycin increased diarrhea. And I won't rehash potential mechanisms for how azithromycin may be special and how it works or other potential harms that I think I've already pointed out from the previous COPD study. One thing I would say with this trial, while it is interesting and a lot of us as hospitalists, as primary care, as pulmonologists um, have seen these situations where we have these patients who are already on inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta agonists and ER docs as well. You know, they hit the ER all the time and they're not controlled despite doing that. And so the only thing I want to say in this study is that a lot of these patients did not have other additional therapies. There were some people who were on a leukotriene modifier, but none of the people in the study, as far as I can tell, were on a biologic. Therefore, I think we just got to take this trial for what it is. And it's just one more thing in the armamentarium, you know, in our minds, where if we have a patient who keeps going back into the hospital and we want to try something that hasn't been tried and maybe they can't afford biologics or other certain medications, you know, generic azithromycin, prescribing it for uh, many weeks and seeing if that helps is just one more thing that we potentially could use. It'd be really nice to have head-to-head -head trials against biologics and leukotriene modifiers and other possible, particularly lifestyle changes, you know, getting rid of the cat and getting rid of a lot of the dust in the house and all kinds of other things. But this is a very common disease asthma, very common problem that people end up in the hospital with it and can be very difficult on a person's quality of life. So to have one more piece of knowledge about this, I think is helpful. All right, that's it for me today. Dr. Gil Parat signing out. Catch you on the next round. Adios, amigos.